of George Knapp listening to That UFO Podcast and having one hell of a good time. That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Do me a favour though, because there are some listeners who might not be familiar with the concept. Some will, some won't, if you don't mind just explaining again about the Mandela Effect. Sure. So the Mandela Effect is a a situation where a subset of people remember history happening differently than the majority, what we'd call uh, the consensus uh, version of history or reality. And it's named after uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, it was a blogger named Fiona Broom in 2010. I think she, she coined the term when she found that there were a group of people who remembered Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s. Uh, but of course, in our timeline, that didn't happen. Right? He, came, he got out of prison. He became president of South Africa, won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he died. I think it was in 2013 is when he died. Right? And yet people have distinct memories, and not just one or two people, but a very large number of people. And they remember his wife, Winnie, taking over leadership of the party. They remember Bill Clinton speaking at the funeral, uh, uh, et cetera, or, or different dignitaries speaking at the funeral. And, and so, you know, this was a really interesting concept. And so it, it kind of took off online and you couldn't really do this. Uh, you couldn't really figure this out before the internet because now you have this ability for multiple people to tell you, you know, their experiences and gather them in, in one place. And then it turns out there are many other events in history where, which some people remember differently. One, another big one that, that, that I find interesting is the uh, Tiananmen Square um, situation with the uprising in China. And the guy who was standing in front of the tank, like there was footage of that that was, you know, kind of beamed out all over in the TV set. And so uh, as, as I think the majority remember it, it, the tank did not run over that guy who was called Tank Boy online. But some people remember the tank running him over and it being a very bloody scene and talking about it. And so, you know, you get this, uh, not just big events, you get a lot of little things. Uh, one of the ones that's pretty famous is the, the Bernstein Bears. I was going to bring is, that know, one up. Yeah, that's and that's not a program I'm familiar with being in the UK, but it's Berenstain versus Berenstein or Stein. Yeah, versus Berenstein. A yeah. lot of people remember it as Stein, like, uh, but it's actually S-T-A-I-N if you look at it now. And now what's weird about that one, and you might say, okay, it's just one letter <laughs> difference, right? But it's it's what I call having people that for whom that event has higher significance or or closer proximity and so there are many people remember talking about it with wondering why these bears are jewish right because one of those spellings is jewish and one of those is not and they remember having conversations with adults when they were kids uh, about that and so they have a closer proximity to that and so they might have talked about it you know similarly there are people in the evangelical christians who remember the reverend billy graham who's big here in the u.s uh, you know, dying many years or several years before he actually died. And, you know, they got people saying that their parents who are devout followers of these particular reverends, and they get magazines about them every month, remembering on the cover, you know, there he was with his death and he died and all these people spoke at his funeral. <laughs> and so it's less likely that you're going to uh, get that wrong if you were closer or you had a proximity to it. 
Uh, so, so that's the Mandela effect. Yeah, it's an interesting one because there's, like you say, there are big examples. The name, namely the Mandela one, being the biggest. But the smaller ones again are logos for clothing brands. Foot of the Loom is a clothing brand, really famous. And there's people show you the logo and say which is the correct logo, and people remember it being largely the one that it isn't. How much right. of this, though, is just your brain filling in the gaps? Because it wasn't something you pay loads of attention to, and your brain just fills in the, the world around you. Like those videos with the tank going along, your brain automatically processes, regardless of how long you see that clip, well, what happens next? The tank's going to run over the guy. And just as time goes on, that becomes the reality of what happened in your head, because, well, that's what I've always thought happened. Do you think... It is just a case of your the brain playing tricks, or is there something more to these these mass not delusions because they may not be that these mass assumptions these mass realities? Is it a case of reality slipping? Is it a case of a change being made? I think in the Matrix it was the glitch, the black cat passing by the door twice. Right. Is is that so, what we're looking at? Well, that's a good question. And so you know, originally my take was kind of the mainstream. Uh, scientific take is, oh, that's just faulty memory or your brain filling stuff in. And I think with the smaller stuff, it's possible that's the case, you know, like GIF versus Jiffy peanut butter. I mean, there are Fruit Loops being spelled one way versus another. But I think as you get to the more, like I said, you get to the more significant stuff, it becomes more and more difficult to believe that, you know, especially if you had conversations about it with people, right? It's one thing if you just sort of remembered something a certain way. And so, you know, I, I, I decided to take the tack to say, okay, well, what if this were true? How could it work in a simulated? And it turns out, a simulated environment, it's much easier for this to happen in a simulated multiverse. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier that I interviewed the uh, the wife of uh, science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, and you know, he had a speech in Metz, France, back in uh, 1977 at a sci-fi convention where he had a famous line, and he said, "We are living in a computer programmed reality." And the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed, some alteration in our reality occurs. Now, the reason I interviewed his wife was because that's a famous phrase within simulation theory, and I just thought I'd get some more color around it. But I didn't really pay attention to the second part of what he said there, right? That it wasn't just that we're living in a computer program reality, but that you can change variables. And then he said it would be as if you were re-experiencing the same events and you were hearing the same things, saying the same words. And he actually came to believe this is what was really going on. So he had a book called A Man in the High Castle, which is about uh, a, a timeline where Germany and Japan, the Axis powers, won World War II, and then they split the U.S. between them. And so, you know, it's a science fiction novel, but he actually came to believe that that timeline really happened at some point in the past and that it was unwound. And so, you know, he came to this conclusion partly because he would have these little things happen, like... He went into a bathroom and he had a chain light, if you remember the old chain lights. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it wasn't a chain light, it was a it was a light switch. And he's like, well, I've done this hundreds of times. And he inserted this into several of his stories, but it, it also formed the basis for uh, the movie The Adjustment Bureau, which came out uh, a few years ago with uh, Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. But basically, you know, he started to theorize that there were these people changing little variables. But that is the more important part of what he's saying is that uh, if you actually change a variable, you run it again and you see what, what's going to happen, right? Well, it turns out that's why we run simulations in the first place, right? We, we change variables, we run it again to see what will happen. And there's a concept within uh, you know, computer science called 
uh, computational irreducibility, which was coined by a guy named Stephen Wolfram, who was a, he, he created the Mathematica software, he, a physicist, uh, later turned uh, into more of a computer guy, and, and he believes the whole world is based on computation. But this concept means that in order to find out what will happen, you can't take a shortcut. You can't just calculate what will happen at step 2 million. You have to go to step 1,999,999, and before that, 998, 997. And you have to run all those steps to see what will happen. Because in each of those steps, there are choices that could be made, uh, and things could go differently. And so there's these random elements that you run in the simulations. And, and so that's when I really started to look at, well, is it possible that what people are saying about uh, the multiverse and what we're talking about with the Mandela effect uh, and this idea of peeking into other realities really is us just trying to try out, just trying out these different uh, timelines. And so it's possible that you know, when we say there's only one physical reality, what we mean is that is the one that is being rendered right now, but that's not necessarily you know, the likely one or the outcome. And when we run video games, we do this all the time. We project forward to see what might happen, right? And then we cut off certain paths because they don't look promising. And and turns out that's what Philip K. Dick was saying. And, and he got to the point where he thought he was communicating with some uh, beings who were actually running the simulation. They could be aliens. They could not be. Who knows? But, you know, and, and his wife said that sometimes he would be talking to these guys. And I said, well, what do they look like? And she goes, well, I couldn't see them, but I would see like this weird, you know, kind of a little bit like a plasma or a weird ripple <laughs> or something. And they even told him at one point that they had prevented the assassination of JFK in Dallas. But then he ended up dying in Orlando, right? And that, or he ended up getting assassinated somewhere else. Or it ended up in a bad way, like with the nuclear war. And so that was the reason they unwound that timeline. But if you think about this idea of a, of a path, right, of a river with different tributaries, um, there's a, a, an old short story of a guy named Bor, Borges, who, um, which is called The Garden of Forking Paths. And in it, he talks about, you know, all of these paths have existed, right? And that may be what's happening uh, in, in real life. And so the science, scientists have come up with this idea of the multiverse, which is every time a decision needs to be made, we break off into another physical reality. And that's, of course, what gave rise to all the multiverse fiction that we have now, like, yeah. you know, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. We have the DC multiverse. Uh, there, there's actually a, a great movie depicting the multiverse that came out earlier this year. Everything, Everything Everywhere, All at Once. That's the one, yeah. yeah. And in that one, she's verse hopping, right? She yeah. goes and experiences. Now, the difference that I find interesting about that one versus the other multiverse depictions is that, you know, there's only one of her in a way. She's hopping back and forth, whereas in the other depictions, you know, you're meeting other versions of yourself, like yeah. physical versions of yourself, and and that's that's an interesting open question. But what if we were simulators and players in this game, and we can basically say, okay, stop this one, let's run this other one. <laughs> I want to see how it goes, uh, and and you know, this is where simulation theory then intersects with. Uh, this other area that I spent a lot of time looking into, which is near-death experiences. Right? So, you know, I have a friend named Daniel Brinkley, and he wrote a book called Saved by the Light back in the 90s, which was really popular. And he got struck by lightning, and he was dead for so many minutes. And, you know, he, he described kind of the classic near-death experience, right? Hovering over your body, meeting a being of light. But the, the, the area that really stood out to me was, he, he called it a holographic 360 panoramic life review. 
So it was reviewing every single moment of your life, but in such vivid detail uh, that you know it was as if it was being recorded and played back. But then he had to go and experience that from the other person's point of view for every interaction he had in his life. So and he used to shoot people in the military, right? So he had to okay, experience yeah. what it was like being shot by him. And or he used to get in a lot of fights. He was a bit of a bully, a big guy when he was a teenager. And so he had to experience what it was like being beat up, you know, by himself. And he goes, that changed his entire perspective. Now, you know, for me as a uh, as a computer science guy, I say, well, if if this is true, and thousands of people have been reporting this, and there may be millions that have had you know these these things happen to them, then to me, I'd say, well, how is it possible unless it's being recorded, right, somewhere? And so you have to be able to play it back. And so you know, if if it's just like a video game today, you know, my, my nephews go on YouTube and they watch like people playing uh, recording of their video game session of Star Wars Online, you know. Yeah. Um, one of my nephews, when he was like uh, three years old or four years old, was like, I want to watch that guy and that girl play Star Wars. <laughs> and, and so it was like reviewing the game, figuring out what you did right or not. And that's what we do in, in, in eSports. And I was part of a company in Silicon Valley where you could put on a virtual reality headset and then you could, you could go inside a game that you played previously, just on a regular screen, like League of Legends. So anyway, that, that all kind of ties to this idea that perhaps – you know, there are uh, recordings, but also uh, within the near-death experience, every now and then you find someone who sees what would happen in the future if they chose X versus Y. And it's almost like, it's like the, uh, the I don't know if you ever read Journey of Souls by Dr. No. Michael Newton. Which he was a, a hypnotherapy, he was like a psychologist, but he, he used a past life regression therapy at one point, but he ended up in the in-between state. <laughs> In between lives, which I what I would what I call outside the simulation, and what the Buddhists might call the bardo, and what he calls the in between state. And he said, just before people claimed they were being born, they would be like these machines. It would be like a movie projector, and you could see these different timelines. And if they made different choices, it would go this way versus that way. And and so I, you know that this all kind of tied together for me, and that's what the simulated multiverse is about, with this idea of quantum computing. And, and I won't get into quantum computing too much, but quantum computing is uh, uses qubits rather than bits. So bits are like zeros and ones, and they have to have a value of zero or one. But a qubit is like Schrodinger's cat. It has a value of both zero and one. And so if you have like four bits, you know, you would have two to the fourth different possibilities. 16, if you just make a zero and one. And that basically is defining a multiverse, believe it or not, because it means... And the way quantum computing works is that it theoretically solves problems that are too complicated and would take too much time for us to solve using regular computing. It's like the old uh, story of the, the, the king and the, and the chess board uh, in India where the king likes to play chess and this wise man says, I'll play chess on one condition. Because the king says, you know, if you win, I'll give you whatever you want. He goes, okay, here's what I want. I want one grain of rice on the first square of the chess board two grains of rice on the second square, three grains of rice on, you know, and I'd say four grains of rice and then eight grains of rice. So doubling each time. Yep. And the king is like, fine. And of course the guy won, the wise man won the game, but it turns out by the time you get to the 64th square, there's not enough room in all of India <laughs> to store that many grains yep. of rice. And so that's what we call an exponential problem. It's very difficult to solve because you have to explore all of those pathways. Well, quantum computing explores all of those pathways by looking at different 
worlds, each of which has the different values of the bits. Um, so anyway, this is, I mean, I've gotten kind of a little bit in the details here, but no, this okay. is, you know, where, where I think the simulated multiverse, you know, makes more sense as a way for exploring multiple paths and then picking a path. Uh, and what we think of as reality is just one of the things being rendered at this point in time. In the same way, if we go back to UFOs, you know, there are people who claim they've talked to um, aliens who are really people from our future saying, don't go down this path. You know, why would they say not go down this path? Well, if they've already been down that path, right? So they've gone so far on the tree and we're over here and they're trying to get us to fork <laughs> to a different different part of the tree is the way I like to think about it. Well, for the last part of the interview, I want to bring it back to UFOs and talking about the context of a simulated universe or, or multiverse. How, how do UFOs fit into that for you? What is the best explanation of why people see these craft? Why are they seeing things materialize? Are these objects part of our individual universes? Or do you think these could be objects which are traversing the multiverse themselves? Uh, well, you know, I've considered a lot of those possibilities. But, you know, I think the mechanics, like I talked about earlier, uh, are very similar to what happens when you render in the pixels on the screen, right? And you can like render yourself anywhere, right? Sometimes people talk about them moving so fast from one place to another that it's kind of mind boggling. And it's almost as if, you know, like you're taking a flashlight and you're kind of moving it across the screen, right? It's almost like they're going that fast. And, and that, you know, le leads me to believe that in a simulated world where everything is pixels, that's actually possible. Uh, whereas in a physical world, you know, with physical laws, it starts to become more and more complicated in terms of how that might work. So I think from a mechanics point of view, you know, this idea of materializing instantaneous travel, leaving the physical dimension, showing up somewhere else, you know, what does that mean? That's possible in a, in a world of information. Now, I'm not saying that the UFOs aren't real or physical because Clearly, they once they get here and they render fully, they become physical objects that impact, you know, what happens in the physical world. But they seem to have this ability, you know, to go in and out. Now, in terms of, you know, where they're coming from, I, I mean, I, I kind of subscribe a little bit to, to the Jacques Vallée theory that, you know, they're being presented to us in a certain form, right? And in the same way that in, in, a, in a video game, I can change my avatar. Right. I can look like me. I can look like, you know, an elf. Right? I can look like and, and, and they can still be the same character. And so the same phenomena seems to me like it's been manifested over different time periods, going back to you know the religious phenomena uh, from from thousands of years ago to the airships from hundreds of years ago. And suddenly they're being rendered as heavier than. Um, than air types of objects, right? That uh, and and so that is perhaps based on our knowledge of the universe. Now, I was talking about you know science fiction earlier, and I feel like science fiction actually plays a role in forming our perceptions, right? Just like when somebody saw a light in the sky thousands of years ago, they said, "Oh, that must be an angel," right? That's how they interpreted it. And in fact, um, I don't know if you've had uh, Diana Diana Pasoka. Yes. Uh, you know, in, in her book, American Cosmic, and, you know, she talks about the Fatima sightings and, you know, her background is, is uh, in Catholic history. 
And in the Fathom of Sightings, she said, that sounds just like a modern contact UFO event, except they interpreted it through the lens and the paradigm of that time as uh, as the Virgin Mary, right? Even though no, she never said that's who she was, right? And the same thing with the sightings in Egypt that, that happened in, you know, even, even later. And so I think what happened in the earlier part of the century, uh, we began to have knowledge of the solar system and it spread wide. So when we talked about, you know, aliens, we were like, oh, it must be from Mars, right? That was the conception. And all the science fiction shows showed, you know, that which we could handle, which is this is an alien coming from Mars. And, you know, I like to say that this idea of other planets and other solar systems passed the 10-year-old test, right? When superheroes and supermen, they explained his powers by saying he came from another planet in another solar system. Well, that knowledge was pretty common at that point, that there are other stars and there might be other planets. And we didn't know for sure, but it made sense. So just like, you know, alien dramas today are based upon our understanding of the universe. And so we think they they have to come from another solar system because that's our current model, right? But now we're seeing the science fiction evolve to the point where the, the superheroes and the villains are coming from different elements of the multiverse. And so it's very possible that we'll, we'll start being presented with something else in the future, but we're being presented with technological craft that are ahead of our current capabilities. Uh, and so I think that's, that's, you know, that, that could be just how the phenomenon is presenting itself to us. It may not be what it actually is. Since I began the podcast, I've spoken to listeners from all walks of life. One of those that comes up quite regularly are doctors and physicians. If you're one of those looking for a change, then consider locum tenens. Whether you're burned out, need a change of pace, or are just looking to supplement your income, locum tenens may be the solution for you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your speciality, compare different Locum's agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if Locum's is right for you. It's a win-win. If this sounds like a completely free resource you could use, then please use podcast link zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod two that's the number two that's zen.ai forward slash that ufo pod two to let them know that that ufo podcast sent you we hear quite often about ufos influencing and having direct contact with people we hear about people meeting beings and for many especially the general public when discussing the ufo conversation or topic it seems too unbelievable that riz in his apartment out in Arizona or Andy in his apartment in New York or, you know, whoever they are, wherever they are in the world, why would that one individual be contacted by this incredibly advanced species and be given these incredible messages? And thinking of video games, it made me think just as you were talking about lemmings on the Sega Mega Drive and how you would have all these little lemmings that would march towards a wall and they would they would keep going in the, the name of progress, but they would get to a wall and have to stop and you didn't have to give all the lemmings a tool to get through the wall. You just had to give one as the you know as the player of the game. I'm in charge. I could just give one lemming a pickaxe, send him to the front of the queue, and he would hammer away at the wall, and the rest would follow. And it makes me think: Is that why we hear individuals being contacted by UFOs and given messages of, you know, staying away from nuclear power, moving towards world peace, as opposed to to mass sightings happening on a global basis? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. And I, I think it, you know, it gets back to, I, I don't remember that specific game, but that's a nice image 
with the, the lemmings, right? And so, you know, it may get back to if we get enough people this specific message, then they will start to influence the reality, right? Uh, whereas if they're spending all their time with leaders, you know, you're going to get into all kinds of other politics <laughs> and regional, you know, regional type things. And then, you know, there's rumors of contact at that level as well. But, but yeah, I, I do think that it may have to do with the individual players uh, and that, you know, perhaps there is a level, like just because somebody's in charge doesn't mean that their consciousness is more advanced. In fact, it might be that it's less advanced in many ways because of the things, you know, those are the types of people that tend to, to, to get towards getting the power. And so it may be that they've decided, you know, to affect uh, individuals that way. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense because there is this element of, you know, this non-physical aspect, right? Everything comes through telepathy in many cases, right? Uh, even some of the abduction experiences, they happen in that kind of in-between state, right? Uh, and so are they able to to communicate with us at a different level than than the physical? Um, so, so yeah, I think there's definitely some some possibilities there. Riz, in the last few minutes we have, I want to get to some of these listener questions. I had quite a lot sent in and, and they take up a few different topics as well. Uh, first off, Ryan, your question was answered within the body of the interview. So thank you very much for sending that one in. Um, John had a question for you that if this is a simulation, Riz, what are the odds that UFOs are being spawned to inspire us to make technological progress? I think there's something to that, right? Because... Uh, it's almost like they're kind of inspiring us to get to the next level, right? But but getting back to what I said earlier about not making it too easy, right? Yeah. Um, it, it would be, you know, almost too easy if they just gave us the technology. But they're kind of showing us what might be possible. And now, you know, given the materialist uh, paradigm that is very popular today, we're seeing at least within government and even within – we're starting to see cracks in the world of science, right? That says, well, if we see these things are doing it, maybe we will be able to figure out eventually how it's done. Whereas before it was like we were just not even open within the scientific world to anything that could uh, have you know, defy what are the known laws of physics and to travel in that way. But perhaps there is, you know, in addition to the nuclear thing, maybe there's also an element of this is how you can travel around in this simulation because it's so big, right? So we need to present you with options and ways to do that. And oh, by the way, you know, here are some civilizations that got more advanced. And so let's present some of that, you know, to, to you guys to give you ideas. Just like if you play a game, like these old style adventure games, you know, they'll have clues dropped along the way and you have to follow those clues to try to get to the next level up. Interesting. Jared has a question that, uh, Riz, as a futurist, what do you think is the next big thing that is going to change the quality of life for the world? Well, you know, I'm a futurist, but within sort of the computer world, right? And so, you know, I, I didn't get to tell the story today of, of how I first got, you know, seriously thinking about simulation theory. And that was when I was playing a virtual reality ping pong game. Mm. Uh, back in 2016 and I had the headset on and the it was responding so well to my movements that I felt like I was really hitting a ball and I was really paying, playing table tennis against an opponent. So much so that at the end of the game, I tried to put 
the paddle down on the table and I try to lean against the table, which is something I might do at the end of a ping pong game. But of course there was no table and you know, the whole thing fell uh, and I almost fell over. And so that got me thinking about, well, how long would it take us to get to the simulation point? Um, How long will it take us to build uh, matrix like simulations that were indistinguishable from physical reality? And I came up with these 10 stages and so for me, I think there, there will be a point at which, you know, it, it's what we call a singularity within uh, the tech world, a technological singularity. Now, some people think of that only as AI and superhumans, uh, but even if we're able to simulate reality perfectly, we will end up at a kind of simula- singularity beyond which there's no return because then you can experience anything, Right with this, uh, not just VR headset, but with a brain computer interface like in the matrix, where it will feel real to you. So I think that that could be a major thing in the future, but I think getting to that point still is decades, if not a few hundred years away from where we are today. So I think in the near term, you know, this idea of the metaverse, this ability to have virtual property to interact with people virtually, we're already interacting more virtually with everyone, right, since the pandemic. And so this idea of living entire lives in the virtual world and getting jobs and making money within the virtual, I mean, we're already seeing elements of that within social media, uh, but there was a, a game called Second Life that was popular back in the 2000s that where, you know, they kind of prototyped this and people had jobs. You had to go to the bar in Second Life <laughs> to be the bartender, right? And so you had to log in at 10 p.m. every night and then you would earn virtual currency for doing that. And so we're starting to see that. So, so those are the areas that you know I tend to focus on. Of course, you know, there's a lot of other physical things, uh, such as you know self-driving cars, and I think you know will 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 change things quite a bit, as well as I think just having more efficient, you know, energy efficient devices and and salination technology. So there's a lot of those as well. I tend not to spend as much time on those because I'm a video game guy, but I think those would be pretty important. Jason from LA asks, have you read spiritual works like uh, A Course in Miracles, which is scribed by Helen Schuchman? And that that almost seems to parallel the simulation theory. Is that a work you're aware of? I'm aware of it. I haven't read it specifically, but, you know, I have read other, uh, many other spiritual texts. Uh, In fact, one of my, uh, one of my next books is uh, actually about uh, Autobiography of a Yogi, which was written by uh, Yogananda. Uh, was one of the top spiritual books of the 20th century, at least in the U.S. Uh, and he was one of the first guys to bring this ancient philosophy from India and really gain traction. Uh, and, you know, he used to make the analogy that, and, and this was new technology at the time, right? So he, in, in the past, uh, the Hindus and the Buddhists used the uh, metaphors of a dream, right? Uh, that the world is a dream and you can learn to wake up or a play, a stage play, the Leela of the gods. And Shakespeare, of course, who had the famous line about, you know, all the world's a stage and the men and women are merely players. And so Yogananda in the 1920s used the analogy of a movie, a film. Um, and, you know, he saw a film clip where all these people were dying in World War One, And he asked his guru and he said, well, you know, how can this be? There's so much sadness and killing. And, and, you know, later he came to the realization that, well, all those actors are not dying. They're not, they're suffering in the movie, but the actors are still there. And so he used to use the idea of a projector and a film projector and, you know, what makes the movie interesting. And so today, I think if he were alive, he would say, it's a 
interactive movie that you can make choices and you can change the script. And what does that sound like? Sounds like an interactive video game. Right? Um, so I think there are a lot of parallels with the different spiritual traditions. I mean, I haven't read that specific one, but I've definitely heard of it. Um, Valis asks, if we are in a simulation, does that make life less meaningful to you? Well, not to me. I mean, to some people, they they, they, they might say it does. But, uh, you know, because, like I said, I think the religions have been telling us this all along. And the religions were founded by people who peeked out of the simulation, right? They saw something outside the simulation, and then they came back and tried to codify it and use language and metaphors that we would understand you know, 2,000 years ago in, in Christianity, there's the book of life where the angels write down, you know, who goes to heaven, who, do, who doesn't. But also they're supposed to write down the deeds. And in Islam, there's the scroll of deeds. Now, it's not an actual literal scroll, right? They were trying to use metaphors uh, that we would understand. And so for me, this idea that the world is a simulation is kind of an upgraded metaphor that can give meaning to life that says, well, you know, maybe I chose, you know, this particular difficult path because the difficulty level uh, is ramped up, but maybe that's the challenge that I was ready for. Maybe a guy born with a silver spoon in his life at perfect health it wasn't ready for that necessarily. And so that's a different way of looking at it now. You don't have to look at it that way, but that's how I like to look at it and, and how I like to think about using a simulation to make life more meaningful. I've got a question from Newman, and Newman's questions are always very good, so I'll give you this one. Uh, this is about exploits in the simulation engine. If the physical laws of the universe were intentionally designed to foster the spawning of life, could this also mean that there may be bugs in the underlying process of the simulation engine that could be deliberately exploited by advanced civilizations for energy generation and propulsion? Uh, yeah, so that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I, I think that all software has bugs <laughs> and glitches in the matrix, you know, is a term that was used in the movie. Uh, you know, I also used it in a previous book called Treasure Hunt, which was about synchronicity. And so there are glitches. And I think a lot of the phenomenon that surrounds UFOs, you know, definitely falls into this category of, of glitches. And you mentioned ghosts earlier, which could just be bugs where we're replaying the same scenes of something that happened in that in that particular spot. And that code wasn't necessarily cleaned up. So it's still there running. But yeah, I mean, I do think it's something, you know, I, I, I use the example of spoon bending, right? I pulled up in the video, people can actually see, right? It's kind of a glitch, right? I mean, this is not easy to do. And yet I was able to just do it really quickly, but only at that point in time. And so it took a certain amount of energy and intention of other people focused on it in order to change the laws. And so I think it is possible that these glitches can be exploited. Uh, and now... You know, this may be getting getting into, again, speculation on the UFO issue, right? Uh, it could be that by exploiting it, we're, we're exploiting the underlying fabric of the cosmos, right? Uh, and if it's a quantum comp computer, we're actually changing the values of things, of the bits that are running. And so that could potentially be dangerous in a way too, right? And so it could be also that, there's some kind of a moratorium that says you're not allowed to do that until you get to a certain level or a certain level of consciousness because you could basically screw around with, with the fabric of space. Just in the same way we have like the IAEA that says, okay, you know, you're not allowed to have nuclear weapons. Uh, it's a watchdog agency. We want to keep it to just the people that already have it, right? It's possible. And, and you'll see, you'll hear 
stories. I was involved in a film called Thrive, uh, what an article I take uh, about a decade ago. And, you know, they, um, the, the creators, Foster and, and uh, Kimberly Gamble, you know, they, they, they ran across these different devices that could, in fact, generate energy from, from the ether in a way. And they kept getting confiscated. Right now, one one reason for that is you could say, well, it's you know the big oil companies and they want to have petrochemical energy. But another reason is to do that, you again could be tapping into. It's kind of like you're you're screwing around with the pixels of the simulation, and therefore you know it's not clear who the people were that keep showing up to confiscate these types of technologies when they get to a certain point. Uh, and, and so you know, yeah, I mean, I think there are bugs, there are glitches. Uh, that could be exploited, some of which are more mental, psychological, spiritual, and some of which are more physical. And on a similar vein, the final question from Neil, if we live in a simulation, could it be possible that the speed of light in a vacuum represents the maximum processing power of the system? Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, it's really strange that the speed of light is this arbitrary kind of speed limit. Uh, and well, it turns out, you know, that is the speed limit for communication, right? At least as we understand it. And right now I'm talking to you at the speed of light. And, you know, if you were in a video game uh, and two of us were playing, that would be more or less the speed limit for being able to communicate information that had to go through the physical plane. Mm-hmm. Now, there may be glitches outside of that and ways to get around that, but it, it could also be processing power. Some people have theorized that uh, time dilation, right? The faster you go to the speed of light, the harder it is for the simulation to keep track of what's going on. And, you know, without getting too much in the computer science, the way multitasking works is, you know, if I'm running Microsoft Word and then I'm running some other program in the background, uh, the program in the foreground runs 200 uh, CPU instructions. And then the one in the background runs one at a time. And so some people have theorized that time dilation is simply a matter of the the computation that's required when you start to move across space so quickly. For you, it seems like only so many steps have passed, right? So you don't age because your your code is only running five steps, right? Whereas the rest of the world is running, you know, 100, 200 steps. So you kind of go into this background state. Uh, and then that would explain, at least from a computational point of view, why time dilation happens and you end up, you know, a thousand years in the future. Well, it's not a thousand years in the future from your perspective because your program was only running this many steps uh, and everybody else's programs, you know, were running at a, at a certain speed. So it gets, gets down to the clock speed and what runs in the foreground and what's called context switching in computer systems. Riz, this has been a fascinating conversation for me. I've learned a lot. I've understood most of it. And I'm sure the listeners have as well, or the viewers on YouTube. Just to finish off, can you tell people how they can follow you and also follow your work? Yeah, absolutely. So on uh, Twitter, they can follow me at Riz Stanford, just like the university. Uh, and uh, they can go to my website, which is called zenentrepreneur.com. Uh, and from there, you know, there's links to all my books. Uh, many of my articles that I've written, uh, the books are available you know, on Amazon and, and local bookstores as well. I always encourage people to uh, order them from local bookstores. Just yes, me too, where possible. Where possible. And if not, then fine, go order them online. Um, and, and I even have a podcast about simulation theory if you really want to go deep in <laughs> certain episodes uh, as well, which uh, I haven't done lately, but there's a, a good number of episodes already up on that. 
Well, all of those links will be in the description, and uh, I encourage people to pick up their copy of The Simulated Multiverse, but also The Simulation Hypothesis as well, if you haven't already done so. Riz, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was wet. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think they'd be, I guess you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jay?